Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, well, good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. We are excited that you are here with us today. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, please uh, turn, uh, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Also, if you have one of them newfangled Bible apps, you can do that as well. And uh, I'd like to just welcome you here back this morning to part two of our series titled Why Worry, uh, where we're exploring why we worry and the ex- and anxiety that, uh, that that comes from that and uh, and what we need to do about it. And, and uh, now... As we said, the whole point of this series so far is to, to help you to get clear about why it is that we worry and, and what God has to say about worry and what His Word has to say about what to do about worry and anxiety. And so last week we began looking at the root cause of worry. And, and what we discovered is the root cause of our worry or the heart of the worry monsters, we called it, is the fact that you and I have not fully embraced the truth. And the truth that we have not embraced is the fact that we are not in control. Okay, We are not in control. We don't control the economy. We're not in control of the weather. We're not in control of global politics. We're not in control of other people. We are not in control. We don't even have the ability to, uh, to control whether or not we wake up tomorrow morning or whether our family members wake up tomorrow morning. We are not in control. And the truth is we essentially deny. That's the truth that we deny when we worry because, because there's something inside of all of us. There's something inside of you and me that tells us we should be in control. We should be able to control the things that are really beyond our control. And so we worry and we get anxious because we're just trying desperately to be in control of things that we can't control. But the truth is you can't control the things that you can't control because you are not God. And uh, not only that, we know that, that worry actually is bad for us. It, 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 it's, it has negative physical and health effects. It has negative mental effects. Okay? It has negative emotional effects. Worry and anxiety are bad for our relationships and our marriages and families and work. Worry and anxiety has negative consequences in our lives. And we all know it. Okay? But, but, but worst of all, worry is a huge distraction and a barrier in our relationship with God. Because when you worry, you are focused on you and your your life and your situation instead of where you should be focused, which which is God and His love and His ability to sustain you and His plan for your life. Worry is not good for you and it doesn't glorify God. That's why God doesn't want you to worry. See, it's not good for you and it doesn't glorify God. In fact, listen with me to um, pastor and teacher John Piper, what he has to say about this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So clearly, God doesn't want you or me to be anxious. Jesus gives, what, eight reasons not to be anxious back in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. And I think the reason Paul and Jesus and the other writers care so much about helping us get beyond worry, get beyond anxiety, is because it makes God look bad when we're 
worrying all the time, right? It makes him look like he, he's not going to help us or he's out of control or he's not wise or he's not kind or he doesn't know enough to help us. So worry reflects very badly on our, our father. We have a father in heaven who meets all of our needs. So the opposite that Paul commands is peace, peace that, that passes all understanding. And he calls it the peace of God, which means it's peace from God and probably means it's the very peace of God. Because Jesus said, remember, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. This is the very peace that the Father and the Son have with each other that the Holy Spirit gives to us. And the pathway, the verse says, toward the peace is to let your requests be made known to God, and God is our central request. I need you above all things, but all the other requests as well. And we're to do it with thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving directs us back, right? We give thanks for things that have already happened, and we look back to what God did for us, especially in Jesus. And the reason I say especially in Jesus is because that's the way the text ends. It says... Um, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so this peace is happening because with thanksgiving, we're looking back to Jesus and all that he did for us. We're trusting in him, and thus we're united with him. And in union with him, we have a Father in heaven who meets all our needs, and therefore we have a peace that no ordinary human understanding can produce. God does not want you to worry, okay? It's not good for you. It does not glorify him. And that's why we said last week, we need to stop trusting in our ability to control things and acknowledge the fact that we are not in control and instead rejoice in the one who actually is in control and take everything, and I mean everything, to him in prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. And he promised, we were promised, that if we will do that, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we would do those things, we will live a life that, that, that is completely changed for the better and God will be glorified. And that is where we ended up last week. Now, um, this week, I just really want to share something with you that I think is really important to our relationship. Okay. As your pastor, um, what I need you to know is that as much as you all need to hear all this stuff about worry and anxiety, I need to hear it too. As much as you need to hear the Word of God and have it driven into your hearts about this subject of worry, I need the very same thing that you need. Because let me just be really very, very to the bone real here. This is a subject right now that, that I struggle with. I struggle about worrying about things. I struggle, struggle with worry and anxiety. And let me just share you my heart why it is that way, why this is such a struggle for me. You see, right now my heart is very, very heavy. And it's very, very heavy for a lot of reasons. Uh, now, understand, Friday night was an amazing night. It was filled, we filled the NPR up with people who came to worship. Five different churches came together uh, in, in the Boron, North Edwards, and Cal City communities. They came together to sing and hear the, uh, and hear the Word of God being preached and to worship God. And it, it was just, it was an incredible, you know, uplifting experience. My heart was filled with hope and, and joy and love. And it was just such an amazing night, right? And it was even better than I expected. But, but in spite of that, in spite of how good it was, um, in the spirit of Paul's words, I am sorrowful yet 
always rejoicing. You see, in, inside of me there exists this, this, these two distinct emotions, both joy and sorrow. Because in spite of the joy that I have from things like that, I have this very, very, very heavy heart. And, and to make it worse, the reasons why my heart is heavy, they're all things that are beyond my control. Every one of them are beyond my control. There are things that I have no control over, things that I cannot fix, things that I cannot change. But there are issues that are still part of my life, very real. There are issues that I must face. These are things that are not going to go away anytime soon. For instance, um, Devin Ward. I mean, my heart is very heavy for him. To say that he is a special person to me is an understatement. He's one of the most kindest, most uh, genuine human beings I've ever known. He's a young man that I've spent many, 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 many hours with, hanging out with, talking to, joking with, encouraging, counseling, loving. I mean, I've poured a lot of my heart into this kid, all right? This is the kid that joined my youth group, and when he did, he changed everything. And when I say everything, he even changed me, okay? And he was the very, very first person I have ever baptized. All right, You have to understand that he was the very first person I ever baptized as a minister of the gospel. You know, And I was there. I was the one who handed this kid his diploma when he graduated from high school. He is like a son to me. And my heart is very heavy because he's been missing for almost a month now. And, 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 and no one knows where he is. And he's basically vanished. No one's heard from him. And, and I can't do anything about it. I can't fix it. I can't change it. And to make it worse, I've been hearing about you know, some things where people around Devin might have been mistreating him or maybe, you know, been mean to him and hazing him. And I don't have any confirmation of those kind of details, but just the thought of that stuff hurts me and disturbs me because it's just more stuff that's beyond my control. But the, but that's not the worst part. The very worst part the worst part is as much as Devin being missing hurts me, I'm not his mom. Okay? You see, Devin is a kid that I really, really care about very deeply, but I didn't give birth to him. There's a special connection between a parent and a child, especially a mother and their child. And I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, his mom is taking this really, really hard. And when I talk to her, her grief is so overwhelming. It feels like a physical force that falls off of her on to me and I can feel the weight of her grief. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can take this. And then I remember that, that, that what I'm getting is just the overflow of her grief. Okay? I'm getting what, what's pouring off of her. She, I'm not even feeling the full weight of her grief. Okay? What I feel is, for her, is nothing compared to what she's experiencing right now. My heart aches for her and for Devin. And when I talk to her, I feel so helpless. Because I really don't know what to say. I don't just say except I'm praying for him and I'm praying for you and, and I love you. And, and I share with her some of the hope that the Bible gives us. But beyond that, I don't know what to say. Right? I don't have any control over this. And this is one of those situations that just has a profound effect on my life that I have no ability to change or control. This is one of those things I absolutely have no control over. I can't, I can't fix it. I can't change it. it. Makes my heart really very heavy. That's not all. It's not even close. There's so many people I'm praying for and I love and I care about and I watch them struggle and battle their own battles and my heart goes out for them. I'm burdened for them. And when things go right for them, I rejoice with them. And when things are wrong, I lament and mourn for them. Right? And at times it's just so overwhelming to find myself, Lord, why? I mean, why is this so stinking hard? But again, that's not all. 
See, we live in a time right now where everything seems completely upside down. Up is down, right is left, wrong is right, forward is backwards. Okay, and nothing reveals that more than last week's uh, terrorist attack in Orlando, Florida, right? And the fallout that comes out the result of that. You see what happened, you know, what actually happened, the facts are, last week 49 people, 49 human beings, 49 people who were created in God's image were murdered by a cold-blooded terrorist while another 50 were wounded. And this is an act that was carried out by a man professing allegiance to the terrorist organization known as ISIS. And this is a man, in fact, identifies himself as a believer in the Muslim faith. And, and, and these are the facts. These are the facts about this event. But after this, the aftermath, there have been some surreal developments. I mean, we wonder if I'm just living in some bizarre dream world. Okay, you see, what is very clearly, you know, an act of just deplorable hate and despicable violence by a self-professed Islamic extremist. This event is being painted as something completely different. Like people at the highest level of our government are saying, this is not a militant Islamic problem. This is a gun control issue. Okay, That this isn't a radical Islam issue. This is a Second Amendment to the Constitution issue. And I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care how you feel about uh, a gun control. Okay. This is a deliberate misrepresentation of the truth. We're deliberately ignoring the truth of the growing problem that our country is facing, you know, related to terrorism and radical Islam. We're sweeping this under the rug, right? And this event's being used as a political football to make a, an agenda go further down the field. And that, because of that, my heart is heavy. Okay? Again, this is something I can't control. But that's not all. Because there's some really disturbing themes emerging from this event. Like the lady who came out and who blasted all Christians who were praying for the victims. And she said in essence that it's hypocritical for people who don't endorse the LGBT lifestyle to pray for these victims and their families. She says because if you don't support them in life, then how can you, you know, care about them in, in death? Because the conversation has been framed by our secular culture as... If you don't support gay marriage, and if you believe what the Bible says, and you call sin, sin, okay, especially when it comes to certain lifestyles, then you by very definition just hate gay people. Okay? That's the conversation. It doesn't matter how you feel about them. It doesn't matter how, how, how much compassion you feel for them. It doesn't matter if you mourn for them during a tragic time like this and express that love and you demonstrate and be good to them. It doesn't matter because if you don't endorse what they're doing, then you must obviously hate them. That's what this is all reduced to. That, that to love is to endorse and then to not endorse is to hate. And that's what the rhetoric has, has been reduced down to. Now, you and I know that that's not the, what it is. Okay? That's not even close to what the truth is. But, but that's the growing point of view. That's the growing philosophical assumption of our time. That, that this is the culturally accepted norm that has no basis in, in reality and no basis in fact. It's just simply the cultural decision to label it this way. And at this point, this point of view grows. And as I see people blindly and uncritically adopting views like this, especially young people, my heart gets heavy. And as I see meaningful dialogue where people actually can, can talk, that collapses into just name-calling. And as the proponents of tolerance spew out vile hatred for those who don't agree with their position, my heart gets heavier. Because again, this is out of my control. I see the, the cultures devolving into a self-centered, immoral society. I see my beloved country on a collision course with disaster, and I can't fix it. I can't change it. 
I can see the anti-Christian sentiment growing for, uh, for those who, who try to walk in grace and truth, for those who, who love people unconditionally but at the same time will tell everyone the truth about the gospel, including the difficult subjects like sin and hell and repentance. I see Christians like this being labeled as, as hateful and bigots and homophobes and religious extremists themselves. But I, but I think that the most disturbing development in all of this is that there are people who profess to be Christians who act like the bigoted and hateful you know, Christians that the culture expects us to be. In fact, let me just share something with you to, 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 to make my point. And, and I'm going to warn you, what you're about to hear is disturbing, okay? But you need to hear this. This is Steve Anderson. He's the pastor of the Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. And here's what he says. Here's the good news and the bad news about this, you know. The good news is that there's 50 less pedophiles in this world because, you know, these homosexuals are a bunch of disgusting perverts and pedophiles. That's who was a victim here, are a bunch of just disgusting homosexuals at a gay bar, okay? That right there, my friends, that is real hate. That is real hate being promoted by a so-called Christian. Now, I want you to know that, that what he just said here is a complete opposite of what the gospel is. That is not even close to representing the gospel. There is no good news in 50 people being brutally murdered. That's the perversion of the Christian faith. Okay, and to say that this man right here is a pastor, that just makes me want to vomit. Okay? Because what he is sharing here is so far and away from the gospel that I would even go so far as to publicly question if he even really has met Christ. And I don't normally do that, but I would publicly question if he actually met Jesus. I don't know how someone can meet Jesus and not be moved by compassion for people. Okay, because of words like this, they just baffle me. I don't understand how someone who can claim to love Christ um, and, and, and be like this. But that's not all he said. Here's what else he said. I would never take things into my own hands or become a vigilante. But I will say this, you know, the Bible says that homosexuals should be put to death. Obviously, it's not right for somebody to just, you know, shoot up the place because that's not going through the proper channels. But these people all should have been killed anyway, but they should have been killed through the proper channels, as in they should have been executed by a righteous government that would have, you know, tried them, convicted them, and saw them executed. You notice how cold and cavalier and callous this man is? He's cavalierly talking about executing people like it's no big deal. Okay, like the execution of people and for their sins is just something to, to be celebrated or or to, to be venerated. I mean, he's he goes on, you know, on on later on in in, in this video. I mean, I, I don't I don't have it all here, but uh, he goes on to cite to, to to cite verses from Leviticus, trying to back up his his claim. But he fails to mention that in the same text that the death penalty might be you know you know pronounced for homosexuals. That same death penalty is pr pronounced for adulterers and Sabbath breakers and children who don't obey their parents. Okay, all right. He conveniently forgets about these things, but he's focusing his hatred on a specific group of people, and that is exactly what true hatred looks like. That is what it looks like when, when so-called Christians hate marginalized people. And it's people like him and his church and the, and the, the churches like the Westboro Baptist Church that, have, you know, th that our culture is looking to. They're looking to those people as the example of how Christians actually feel and think and believe and behave. And again, this is beyond my control. Okay? And it makes my heart heavy because as I watch this, 
I just want to shout. That is not who we are. But it seems like the whole world is bent on misrepresenting Christ in the church. And it seems like this growing anti-Christian sentiment is accelerating. I think about this and, and I think about terrorism and, and the political mess in our country. Um, and, and I think about you know the proliferation of things like drug use and crime and the normalization of, of pornography. And my heart just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And I begin to wonder, what in the world's the point? Okay? It seems like at every turn, evil is winning. So what's the point? And when I think about the future of this country and our community, and even my kids, I think, Lord, when are things going to get better? I, I mean, we, we're, we're working so hard and we're giving so much of ourselves and we're, we're doing everything in our power to change things. You know, when will things get better? When will things go back to normal? And then it hits me. The root cause of the heaviness in my heart and the worry I feel is the denial of another truth. See, that's the, root, that's the root of my struggle. The root of my struggle is I'm denying and I'm forgetting another truth. And what I'm, what I'm forgetting is the fact that people are broken. And this world is broken. That's the truth. We are broken people in a broken world. And the whole thing is covered up in sin. And it is not going to get better on its own. That is why we can never come up with a solution to problems that face humanity or the world without other problems surfacing. That's why whenever there's an advancement, there's also negative ramifications with it. Like, for instance, you know, technology. Humans have more access to more information right now than at any point in recorded history. Okay? That, that we should be the most enlightened people that has ever existed. And half of the traffic on the Internet is pornography. That's what we're doing with that advancement in technology. You see, we are still broken, living in a broken world, and no matter what we do, this world is still decaying. And it will continue to be like this until Christ comes back and makes things right. That is the truth about the world that I continue to forget, that we are broken people living in a broken world. And so when I ask God, when will these things be normal, I'm forgetting another truth, that hatred and persecution of Christians and of the church is actually what is normal. You've got to understand this. The hatred and persecution of the church and of, of Christians is actually what is normal. We're told this. John 1, uh, 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. Jesus himself said, John 15.18, If this world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christians, Christian persecution is normal in this world. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, in the words of Jesus, John 16.33, In this world you will positively have tribulation. Okay? Our culture hating and being anti-Christian is actually normal. It's par for the course. This is how the world has been since the beginning. But our country you know, uh, was for such a long time really unusual. In our country, where, where the Christian faith, when it was venerated and respected, and, and actually the foundation of our culture, that was actually abnormal. Because that's not how the world actually is. I mean, think about this. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. My friends, that is not normal. 
That is not normal. That's completely abnormal. And even those of us who follow Jesus Christ know that that's abnormal. That's why it's so hard to do. So for many, many years, our country has been this abnormal light in the world. But over time, our culture has been normalizing it. Over time, our country has been doing what the rest of the world has been doing. It's embracing a secular point of view. And now our country is more normal. And, and, and what it's doing is normal for the rest of the world. And, and this rising up of, and persecuting and hating of those who follow Christ, this mocking and belittling and imputing the church, that is all normal. This is normal to be misunderstood. It is normal for us to be ignored and for us to be despised. That is completely normal. But let me just say, before we get all like, hey, you know, Oh boy, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and you know, Jesus is coming back next week or you know, planes are going to fall out of the sky. We need to understand that this is how the world has always been. The world has always been decadent. The world has always been filled with violence. The world has always been filled with every imaginable form of sexual impurity. The world has always been filled with political corruption. The world has always been filled with people that just seek their own interests. The world has always been filled with exploitation and inequality. The world has always been filled full of hate and lust and pride. The world has always been filled with people killing each other for their beliefs and for their lifestyles. And God's people, God's people have always been hated and have always had a target on the back for the rest of the world to come after. That is normal. So why am I so surprised when it's happening in the world around me? Why is this why has this caught me off guard? Why do I feel so worried? Well, let me just be honest with you. I feel worried because I just don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not talking about on a global scale. I'm not talking about on a national scale. I'm talking about closer in. I'm talking about what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to this community? What's going to happen, you know, uh, uh, to this church, right? That's the stuff that I'm thinking about. That's the stuff I tend to, to worry about. What's going to happen when our government says pastors are not allowed anymore to say certain behaviors are sins? Okay? What's going to happen? What, what will happen when the government says, if you, will, if, and if you do that, then we're going to take you to jail and we're going to fine you? What's going to happen then? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my, to my family? What's going to happen to this church? What's going to happen when, when California says that your school district will absolutely change all bathrooms and locker rooms and make them gender neutral? What happens when I refuse to do that? What happens when the school board refuses to do that and the state of California and, and, and the federal government decide, well, we're just going to withhold all your funding? Now we're not talking about just me and a couple of people. We're talking about kids' education. We're talking about people's jobs and livelihoods. What happens then? Right? What happens when, when the powers that be says that this church must perform a wedding between any people, regardless of gender or their, or their beliefs, whatever? And if this church won't do that, they say, we'll fine you and re- revoke your tax-exempt standards, severely hampering your financial resources. What happens then? What happens, you know, because this is how I make my living for my family. This is, this is, this is how I provide for my family is, is, to, is to preach the gospel and to, and, and, to, and to go out and love and care about people, right? And these are all real possibilities. We're not talking about stuff that, that, that like, you know, 20 years ago we thought this is stupid, but like we're like standing here where all this is a possibility. Okay? This is the direction our country is heading. Christians will continue to be lampooned and hated and mocked and despised and drugged into court. We're seeing it happening already. Christians, including you, will 
will see more and more persecution up close and personal. There will come a time that to express your personal faith in Jesus Christ is going to cost you something. And at some point, it might cost you something financially. It might cost you personally in friendships and family. At some point, it might even involve jail time and physical pain. That is the part of our country and, and our culture that's becoming normal. And the most difficult part about this is, guess what? You can't control it. I can't control it. You can't stop it. It's beyond our personal ability to control. This is something that's affecting all of us. It's beyond our ability to control. So what do we do? Well, in the heaviness of our hearts, we naturally tend to begin to worry. We begin to worry about this and worry about that. And we, 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 we worry about what's going to happen and, 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 and how everything's going to work itself out. And we begin to worry about, you know, and become anxious because we just simply can't predict the future. Because we're not in control. And that's the root. We're not in control. And, and, and that lack of control builds fear in us. It creates anxiety in us. That lack of control gives us uncertainty which causes us to worry but still we know worry doesn't do any good. It doesn't change things. It's not good for us. We know that it has physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual consequences. And we know that it doesn't glorify God. In fact, it does just the opposite. So we know that we shouldn't worry. But the truth simply is, there seems to be so much beyond our control that there's so much to worry about. So what do we do? How do we overcome this in our lives? How do we live victoriously in this area as we stand here on the track, staring at the oncoming train of our culture barreling down on us, how do we overcome worry? Because ultimately, we know it's not good for us. And we know that it doesn't glorify God. We know God doesn't want us to worry. So what do we do? Well, besides what we learned last week about praying, about everything, the Bible offers us actually a very practical application for worry. Um, and this particular application is relevant to the things that we're going to talk, uh, that we've been talking about today. Because in this particular case, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are facing incredible political and economic and social and even religious pressure. Okay. They are facing big pressures like we are. And so we find that application in the book of Matthew chapter 6. And let me just, let me just set this up for you real quick. Okay? Matthew 6 is actually part of a continuous text that began in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5 is where Jesus begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon goes from uh, chapter 5 verse 1 all the way to chapter 7 verse 27. And so, and so chapter 6 is right in the middle of this sermon. And this sermon is where Jesus begins to talk about the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are you. Okay? And then he talks about believers, how they were to be salt and light, how we're to be a preserving agent for the rest of the world. And then he comes and he talks about how he's come to fulfill the law. And he talks about things like anger and lust and, and, and divorce. Okay, and then in this sermon he also talks about loving your enemies and, 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 and giving to the needy. And he talks about laying up treasures in heaven and set on earth. And, and he talks about judging you know, other people and, and the golden rule. And he wraps this whole thing up by talking about building our house on the rock, by doing what Jesus says to do. And right smack dab in the middle of this discussion, he talks about worry and anxiety in chapter 6. And, and to understand why this is so important and relevant to us, we need to understand who Jesus was talking to. You see, in verse twenty, I mean, chapter four, verse twenty-five. You don't have to turn there, but in verse four, chapter chapter four, verse twenty-five, he said this. He said, "Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, 
and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, so people came from all around to follow Jesus. Okay, so there's this great crowd of people from a wide geographic area that began to follow Jesus around, and people came from miles and miles around to be with him. And, and they spent many days following him from place to place in order to hear him preach and to be close to him. Okay, Now, this is, this is the place that we're, when you're reading your Bible, you need to stop and ask important questions. And the important question to ask here is why. Why would these people do that? Why would these people travel so far on foot? Think about this. There's not cars. There's not mopeds. All right, They're on foot. Why would they travel so far on foot? And then would they, why would they keep following him from place to place? And the answer simply is this. Jesus offered these people hope. Jesus offered these people hope because the vast majority of these people were Jews and they were being politically and economically oppressed by the Roman governments. Okay? They were in essence a slave nation to the Roman Empire, which means they were politically and economically being exploited. And the vast majority of these people were desperately, desperately poor. And to make matters worse, they were being financially exploited by the, many of their own people who became tax collectors for the Roman government. And they are being religiously exploited by their own religious system. You see, the, the, many of the religious leaders, the, um, um, I can't even think of their name right now, but, but uh, the, the ruling class, they were um, leaders in bed with, uh, with, with the Romans, and they were actually wealthy as, the, as a result of that. And then there were the, the other religious leaders, which were the Pharisees, were oppressing them by heaping in, you know, impossible uh, rules on them. Right? They were just, just, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then they were enforcing these rules with, uh, with the temple police, and people were being you know, beaten, and people were being you know, executed as a result. And so these people were desperate. They were being exploited and maligned at every angle, and it seemed like everyone was standing against them. Their government, their culture, even their own religious system. And so life was incredibly, incredibly hard for them. And so they gravitated towards Jesus because they saw in him the hope that they had never, ever known. I mean, this guy was traveling around and he, he, was, he was taking the time to heal people. He would touch lepers and he, would, he was forgiving people, right? And Jesus was restoring sight to the blind and making the lame walk again. And, and, and here's this man talking about the kingdom of God. And he's not talking to like the best of the best. He's down in the trenches talking to the worst of the worst, the brokenhearted, right? And all these people... No, all they know is pain, all they know is poverty and oppression, and they see this hope in Jesus, and they, they follow him. And so Jesus takes the time to minister to these people, and to love on them, and to preach to them. And, and, and there's this huge gathering of desperate people who have come from miles around, and it's during this sermon, okay, and it's, during, and it's in this context that Jesus addresses these people's worry and anxiety. And so we pick that up in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 25, and Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, understand, Jesus is, in this text, is addressing people, you know, and their anxieties and what they're, what they're worried about are just basic needs of life, okay? That's what these people face. They, they face not having enough food, Okay? Okay, and not having enough water to drink, and not having enough clothes to wear, not having enough warm clothes uh, to keep them warm when it was cold. All right, that's the stuff that they were facing. These people were desperately, desperately poor. Okay, there was no government assistance. There were no food pantries. There was no Braun Kids Outreach Program. You no know, clothing drive. They were basically on their own, and their daily worry for their life is, "What am I going to eat? All right, and how am I literally going to feed my family? Not so they go hungry, so they don't starve to death." Okay, how am I going to clothe myself? How am I going to protect my family's bodies and clothe them? These are the worries, okay, that they had, right? Now, not that, man, I hope my son makes a baseball team, right? 
Not that, hey, you know what? Gosh, I hope I make it to the gas station because the light just came on, right? You know, not, not, they weren't worried about status updates on social media. They were not worried about what people were posting online. They weren't worried, you know, about getting home in time to watch Criminal Minds or The Walking Dead, right? They weren't worried about free speech or they weren't worried about political correctness. They weren't worried about intellectual property rights. They weren't worried about common core math. Okay? They weren't worried about the next principal, who that might be of their kid's school. They were literally worried about surviving day to day. They were worried about surviving to the next day. They were worried about having enough to eat, having clothes to wear. They were worried about being sick. And their worries and concerns were just of the most basic nature. And Jesus tells them, do not be anxious about your life. What? If there's anything that you're going to be anxious about, won't you think that being anxious about your life would be it? Right? I mean, if you're going to worry about anything else, I mean, you would think that you would have to worry about your survival. If that's anything that, that makes the worry list, that should be it, right? But Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he goes on saying, verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Now let's think about this. Because this is an overwhelming truth that our worry tends to cloud for us. What Jesus is saying here is God is actually, ultimately, our provider. I mean, God is the one who's in control of all things. And He is so loving and He is so thoughtful that He even remembers to provide for the birds. He feeds them and He provides for them. He takes care of them. And Jesus asks, you know, if God's going to provide for the birds, aren't you more valuable than, to God than, than they are? I mean, if God provides for birds, won't He provide for you who was created in His own image anyway? The truth is, that he was trying to communicate is that, that, and the truth that we actually need to embrace is, that, is the fact that God is actually our provider. And, and if He will provide for His creatures of His creation, He will also provide for us who are the crown jewel of His creation because we are more important than the birds. And then He says, And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to His span of life? And, and we talked about this in week one. Jesus is asking a simple question. How many of you can, you know, by worrying, can make yourself live longer? <laughs> How many of you can, can, can make yourself taller? How many of you, by worrying, can change world politics? How many of you, you know, by worrying, can control the things that are really beyond your control? And it's a rhetorical question because you can't, right? And then he says in verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, <laughs> you have little faith. And again, he's saying that if God is going to provide for his creation all the way down to the grass, why don't you think that he's going to provide for you? And then he says, this stunning statement, oh, you of little faith. And there it is. There's the heart of worry. You worry about things because you can't control, because you lack faith in God. And that worry doesn't glorify Him. When you worry, you in essence are saying, I don't believe my God is big enough or strong enough or powerful enough or loving enough to take care of this. Worry is, in essence, a lack of faith. And if you're a note-taker, that's the thing you want to write down. Worry, in essence, is a lack of faith. 
And remember who he's talking to. Okay. He's talking to people who struggle to survive, to have enough food to eat. And then he says in verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious. Okay? And this is a command. Okay? He's saying, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. He says, God's, you're God's people. You're supposed to trust Him. I mean, for crying out loud, people who don't even believe in God, they worry about these kinds of things, right? And they should worry because they don't know God. They don't know that He's their provider. Okay? But you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to trust God. Here's the thing. Okay? What you need to know is God knows what you need. Right? So don't be like the unbelievers who have no faith. Don't worry about food and clothing and, and, and water. Don't worry about the basic things in life. Don't be anxious, but instead, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's making a promise to believers. He said, if you will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all of these things, food, water, clothing, the basic needs for your life will be given to you. They will be given to you. God will provide all these things for you. He, he does it for the birds. He does it for the grass. And He will provide for your needs. What you need to do is to seek first Above all other things, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And this right here is absolutely one of the most important statements in the Bible. Because what Jesus is saying is you need to stop focusing on your worries. And you stop focusing on making your living. And you stop focusing on your basic needs. You need to stop focusing on trying to make it all on your own. And, and you need to stop worrying. And instead, what you need to do is you need to first, before everything else, is seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God's going to take care of the rest. That's what He's saying here. That's what He's telling them. Okay? That's what he's telling us, to put first God in everything else. You need to seek first the kingdom of God, which is the same thing as saying as you need to seek the, the kingdom of heaven, which really means what you need to seek first and foremost is salvation. Because okay? what good is it going to do you to gain the whole world and then lose your soul? What good is it going to do you to solve all your earthly problems and then face one gigantic problem on the other side of eternity when you step off into hell? Okay? If you're not saved, you need to seek the kingdom of God and get saved. And then you need to seek His righteousness, which means you need to live the kind of life that is pleasing to God, that glorifies God. You need to walk in holiness. You need to walk in His righteousness. You need to seek His righteousness so you can glorify Him in every part of your life. That's the whole point. In fact, that's the whole point of your life. You were created to glorify God. That's your purpose. You were created to glorify God, to bring Him glory. Okay? And you don't glorify God when you're worrying. You glorify God when you're saved and you live this transformed life that is pleasing to Him as a beacon of hope to everyone else around you who's all worried. We are to seek first God's interest and His glory. And all we need will be given to us. That's the promise that He makes. Because God is in control and He's the ultimate provider. Okay? That's the whole point of this text. And remember, He's talking to people under incredible, incredible economic and religious and political pressure. Okay? Whose very survival okay, is a day-to-day -day issue. Who, whose people, like, if you just you know, like, offend the wrong person, they'll just kill you. 
Right? If you get sideways with the government, they will just take you out and kill you. Okay? Right? Their survival was a day-to-day issue. These people had it worse than we could we, we can imagine right now. Okay? However dark it may seem to, to us right now, they had it even darker than what it is for us right now. And Jesus' advice for them. His compassionate advice for them is not to worry, but to seek with all their hearts and to live for and glorify God with all their lives. And that God promises. He promises to meet their needs. And then he says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, you need to stop worrying about what might or might not happen. You need to stop worrying about the things that, that haven't happened yet. Okay? You can't even control what happens today. Okay? You're just struggling to survive today. You need to stop focusing on things that you can't control and start focusing on living for me today. And not to worry about things that are going to happen tomorrow. Just seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek to live for God and glorify Him in your life and He will meet all of your needs. Regardless of who's in power, regardless of who makes the rules, regardless of who gets elected, regardless of how culture treats you, seek to glorify God and He will take care of you. Regardless of all these things that are beyond your control, regardless of what makes your heart heavy, do not worry and seek first to live for God and and glorify Him. And He will provide for you and meet your needs. That is the promise. Now, He's not promising your perfect life. He's not promising that you're not going to ever feel any pain. He's not promising that you're not going to face persecution. Okay? And He's not going to promise that you're going to have all the material stuff that your heart desires. It's not what He's promising. This, the promise is that regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the trials we face and regardless of what happens in the world around us, if we will seek first God above all else and His glory and His plan for our lives, He will take care of us and see us through those things as circumstances in our life become the new normal. So what does that mean for me and you? Now that this world is changing, I mean, now that things are in our country becoming even more historically normal, what does this mean for me as a Christian, you know, as, as the Christian faith falls out of favor in a culture uh, and persecution begins to rise in our country? Well, it means exactly the same thing. We need to seek first to glorify God in our lives and trust Him and keep His, you know, to, that He's going to keep His promise to take care of us. And he's going to do what He said He's going to do. We need to have faith that He is going to take care of us. We need to put our, our out of put out of our minds the things that we need that we worry about, and we need to seek to live for God. So when our government twists the truth around about Islamic terrorism, what am I going to do? I'm going to seek to glorify God. Okay. What am I going to do when people accuse me of hating someone because I don't condone someone's behavior? You know, and I call sin, sin. I'm going to seek to live for God. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to do good to those who hate me. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bless those who curse me. And I'm going to pray for those who abuse me. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to seek to glorify God and trust in Him that He's going to work things out to provide for me and my family. 
What am I going to do when the economy tanks again like it has before and things get harder financially? Well, I'm going to continue to work hard and I'm going to do whatever my hands find to do. But first and foremost, I'm going to seek to glorify God and I'm going to do everything I can and I'm going to trust Him no matter how hard things get that He's going to provide for me and my family because He's done it many, many times. I'm going to walk in faith, trusting the one who is in complete control. I'm going to trust the one who provides for all of creation. I'm going to put, put my faith in the one who loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me in the first place. In fact, in Romans 8.32, Paul says, he asks this question, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the crux of the matter right there. God demonstrated for you and for me that He loves us and He cares about us and He's interested in our well-being, that He made provision for us. And He demonstrated that by sending His Son, Jesus, to die for us so we can enter into this relationship with Him where we can know Him and be close to Him. God has proven that not only is He in control and not only will He provide, He's proven that He's trustworthy. That's why this is so important. Because when we worry, we're in essence not trusting the one who completely sold out to save us. I mean, we're, tr- we're not trusting the one who, who did the unimaginable to set us free. I mean, what more does God have to do besides kill His own Son to prove to us how much He loves us and that He's willing to save us? So what do we do? What's the antidote to this worry? Well, the antidote is, is to seek to glorify God in all that you do in all of your life and trust that God is going to take care of everything else. That's how we overcome the worry that we face in uncertain times like we have today. You simply just get busy living for God, seeking to glorify Him in every part of your life, including school and work and home and all of your relationships. You seek to glorify God, you know, and you trust Him to keep His promise to take care of everything else. That is how. Now, please understand, okay, this isn't something... I want you to just hear today and go, wow, that was powerful. And then go home and forget it. Okay? I want for you to take this and I want you to do something with it. And so I'm going to make this really, really practical for you. So here's what, here's what I want you to do with this. Okay? On your note section, in your um, uh, the application section of your notes, page two of your notes, um, I just want you to write two things down. Okay? The two things I want you to write down, first of all, one is this. It says, I want you to write down... What is one part of your life that you're struggling with worry? Okay. Just one thing. You don't have to write the whole list. Just one thing. What's one thing in your life you're struggling with worry? Is it family? Is it finances? Is it work? Is it the economy? Is it presidential politics? Is it, is it school? Is it terrorism? I mean, what is one area of your life that you are struggling with worry? And just write that down. Just write that down. The second thing I want you to write down is I want you to write down one way. Just one. I'm not saying make a whole list. Just one way that you can live for God and glorify Him in a way that you're not doing right now. And maybe it's just like you're like, okay, I'm going to set up and keep a regular quiet time with God. I don't have that yet, so I'm going to glorify God by doing that, having that alone time with Him. Or maybe it's just you're committing to come to church more consistently so you can worship and hear the Word and be ministered to and grow. Okay? Or maybe you can glorify God by finally just getting over it and forgiving someone that you're just struggling to forgive. Okay? Or maybe you just need to reach out and, 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 and love someone that's just really, really hard to love. Maybe you just need to change your attitude about, about your work and about your boss. Right? Okay? And maybe you need to learn to see your work as a ministry opportunity. Okay? Maybe you need to be, you know, more patient with your family. 
Okay? Maybe you could just be more generous and, and, and actually like, you know, do what you keep telling yourself to do and actually tithe regularly. Maybe you need to, to, to get out of your comfort zone and just share Jesus with someone. Whatever it is, there's something that you can do that you're not doing right now to glorify God. Okay? So write that down. Okay? And once you have these down, what I want you to do with this is I want you to make a point this week just to go before God and I want you to pray about this. And, and the prayer just needs to be simple. I'm, I'm not going to teach you this complicated like prayer, for, prayer formula. Okay? It needs to be simple. Like this. Lord... Help me to trust you in this area of my life I'm struggling to trust you in. And help me to glorify you by giving me the courage and the power to do this thing that I can do in my life. Okay? And it can sound like this. Lord, help me to trust you with my finances and not to worry about them anymore. And give me the courage and the power to go out and share Jesus with my neighbor. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right? Something very simple. So write down an area that you're struggling with in your life and then write down a place that you can actually, you know, glorify God that you're not already and then pray about this every week and then watch. If you'll do this, just watch God work in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me pray for you. Father, this... This is a subject that really hits me because I've learned, I have, I have I've learned to trust you in so many things. I've learned to trust you with my finances. I've learned to trust you with the day-to-day, you know, things in my life. I've learned to trust you with my busy schedule and, and, and all the things that seem to be impossible to get done. I've learned to just turn to you and trust you when, when things get complicated, you know, um, at home. I've learned to just trust you in so many ways, but there are so many ways I still struggle to trust you. Uh, there's still so many things I worry about, and I, I, am, I'm, I'm, I want to let go of that right now. I, I want to just be worry-free. I, I know, Lord, that the course of history is going in a direction. I know that things are not always going to be great for Christians in this country. I know, Lord God, that, this, that, that, that sometimes it's going to cost us something to, to speak up and, and be the defenders of our faith. I know that there are going to be things like... Devin, that are going to pop up in my life and I can't fix their control. So I'm going to come back to you and get on my knees. I'm just going to just trust you, Lord, with that. And I'm going to seek to glorify you in everything I do. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to love people more. I'm going to love the ones that are hard to love. I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to be faithful to, to be in the Word with you. I'm going to be faithful to seek you the first thing in the morning when I get up. I'm going to be faithful to think about you the last thing before, you know, before I go to sleep. I'm going to devote every waking moment I can to glorifying your name. I'm just going to trust, Lord, that wherever I end up is where you want me to end up. And that your plan is good. Your word says all things work together for those who love God and called according to his purpose. And I trust that. I trust that implicitly. And I know, I know, I know, no matter what comes my way, you're in control and you're my provider. And I pray that all of us would just take that message home and we would be changed by that. And that we would begin to really manifest your love and grace in the rest of the world around us. And we thank you for that. We lift you up and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.